Welcome to Activation Energy by the Chemical Angel Network. I'm your host, Selma Duhovich. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Rajiv Bonavali, the Senior Vice President of Science and Innovation at WestRock, one of the largest paper and packaging companies in the world. Before joining WestRock, Rajiv spent nine years at Honeywell and was the Global Vice President of Research and Technology at Huntsman Corporation. With a PhD in organic chemistry, Rajiv has 30 years of experience and expertise in material science and sustainability. Rajiv, thanks so much for coming on the show. Salma, it's nice to be here. Let's start with the definition of innovation. You know, I always really like what Steve Jobs said. Uh, He said that innovation is what distinguishes a leader from a follower. And he's right. So, you know, that's that's really the definition of innovation is that, you know, which is different than what the dictionary says. In my opinion, the dictionary says, you know, very specific, right? Dictionary says that innovation is act of, you know, innovating. But what does that mean? And I think people have debated this uh, to define it. And the one definition that I like is innovation is the successful exploitation of new ideas and leveraging talent together with technology to solve the problems. That's how that's how I define innovation. And how do you view the distinction between breakthrough and incremental innovation? Do you have any examples of both? Yeah, this is uh, this is incredibly important. You know what we call horizon 1 and sometimes horizon 2 innovation, these are sustaining or incremental innovations. They are typically done where they improve the existing product or existing solution or existing technology incrementally. You know, it's and this is really done by, you know, not by creating new market, but taking the existing product and trying to provide a better value or a better solution. It could be some improvement in cost or a slight improvement in performance. And it is generally in response to a very specific consumer or customer need that is expressed and that that incremental innovation software this. And a good example of that sustaining innovation would be a smartphone today. I mean, if you look at and I know I, I, Apple just did its uh, announcement uh, just a few minutes back. And what they're innovating now is incremental changes to smartphone, right? A different color are going now, you know, iPhone SE is a, you know, slightly more cost-effective origin. So what Apple and Samsung are doing are in smartphone areas now incremental innovation. Now, on the other hand, disruptive innovation, breakthrough innovation, horizon three innovation, whatever you call it, that is really very different, right? And if you really look at, uh, I, I like Clayton Christensen, uh, who really was the, you know, sort of the development of a theory on disruptive innovation. And really what he really means that disruptive innovation is about reinvesting and totally reinventing in technology or even a business model, are simply inventing something altogether that did not exist before. And disruptive innovation creates totally new markets, new products, and new values. And the examples of that, uh, the disruptive innovation will be, again, going back to smartphone, but when the Apple first came up with the first iPhone, that was truly disruptive smartphone innovation. Or what Amazon has done with e-commerce, or what Uber has done with uh, the car driving or what Netflix has done with streaming. I mean, those are disruptive innovations and business models. Can you talk a bit about how companies identify uh, opportunities for innovation 
and how they go about finding high potential paths to growth. Yeah, uh, and so my, I will, I'll speak to here from my experience at West Rock, uh, where I work today, but also my past experience working for some of the other large material companies. It's really, I think here as, you know, from the standpoint of uh, the companies identifying opportunities, we need to really appreciate the entire ecosystem. It's the, it's the ultimate consumers, it's the, our customers, especially when you are in a B2B world like most of us are, but also our suppliers, our employees, because we, we all bring different voices uh, and perspectives to the table. And we talk about what are the biggest challenges facing us uh, what are the mega trends? And I think that's how we define the opportunities for innovation first. What is it? What is it that's needed? What are we trying to solve for? And if once you do that, and that's how we look at voice of customer, voice of the, the ecosystem, and that's how we define uh, innovation uh, at Westrock, especially. We are solving our customers' problems and their customers' problems, which are generally the consumers and consumers in the end. And then when these problems and change become more and more challenging, we look at how that change looks and how can we prioritize innovation to solve that, to solve that need and can we actually make a difference? Because innovation is not about just solving something in the laboratory, but taking it to the market. You mentioned solving the problems of your customers and their customers. And I'm wondering how companies go about figuring out what their customers want when sometimes customers themselves don't know what they want. 15 years ago, people didn't know that they wanted an iPhone, for example. Exactly, right? And that's, that's the one uh, where I, I like to you know, use the very famous Henry Ford quotation, right? He said, I never asked my customers uh, whether they wanted a car because they would have told me you know, they wanted a bigger, faster horse. The car did not exist, Automo an automobile did not exist. So sometimes your customers are in that phase, but the, the reality is that as the saying goes, right? The necessity is the mother of all invention. So if there is a need and these world-changing ideas come from urgent need. So sometimes those, those ideas happen uh, from the customer specifically expressing it, but sometimes and often those happen because somebody, a technologist, a scientist, engineer, comes up with that aha moment and idea. But the, the thing that we have to do is not really just focused on one or the other, but take the combination of both. And what, what when we look at this is we say, look at our customers, both big and small, many of them are voicing interest in finding more sustainable materials today for us in packaging. And that's really a mega trend. That's something that uh, we know from both specific customer ask, but also big what is happening in the world today kind of ask. And so once we have gotten that kind of intent from different marketplaces, uh, we know that we had to embark on that sustainability journey. This is something how you know, our innovation process starts. Uh, so the ability to connect the global trends, legislation is also important, the consumer demand, and you know, mega trends. So all of that really leads to very specific unmet needs. And then we need to look at, can we solve the problem? Not just by innovation, but uh, do we have supply chain in place that, is, that can do it? Do we have manufacturing? Can we scale this up? Would it meet the needs of customers? And this is how we look at the market and see how we can approach the new ideas and mobilize around these opportunities so that uh, we can drive the results 
And then again, in now, once we start, we had to be very agile, but have a discipline at the same time, because you never know. Once you start on this innovation journey, you never know how it's going to end. It's, it could be fantastic or it may end up stopping something. Predicting early on which products will be adopted by customers and which ones will fail must really be hard, no? It's really very unpredictable. And uncertainty is what really can, you know, keep the best in class companies from innovating with speed because, you know, there's always often this big question mark. Will the technology work? Uh, can you really deliver at scale? Can you deliver, you know, both performance, but also the cost that is needed from the ultimate marketplace? Would some competition come in and do something and stop it? So all of this uncertainty means that you have these barriers for innovation that uh, can really make all of that work futile. So how do you how do you really make sure that you're launching relevant innovation with agility and confidence is absolutely more critical than ever. And things, you know, if everything that I hear, and I'm sure some of my your listeners here today is that speed, everything is moving faster and faster. So one of the things we do is we, it's a process, we follow a process, we follow a stage gate process, which is where you can take incremental decisions, pass the gates and you know, either stop, go back, or proceed with more investments, more risk. But we also do what we call test, learn, and scale. What is that? So in our, our innovation process, we really don't do things in vacuum. Uh, we get early feedback from our customers. Hey, you know, this is something that we have done in the lab or pilot plan. See if it works. You know, what, what, what do you like, what you don't like? And we go back and forth and learn from that and improve it. And then we have a scale-up model. Uh, we can go from lab to small pilot plan to small manufacturing. We, we can go from one geography to the global scale from one customer to the entire market. And that's that allows us to really take some risk, but also go faster and adopt as we see things happening. So this is really how we think that, to answer your question, is that since we don't know how ultimately things will happen, let's take a, a process approach and take a stage gate approach with the nod and go. And that, that has helped us tremendously. I imagine you as the senior VP of science and innovation get to help set the innovation strategy. Can you describe how you go about selecting in which areas you ought to innovate? Yeah, uh, this is a very good question. I mean, how do we select what we'll work on? I mean, this is a question of our both strategic imperative about, you know, how Westrock as a company, what we have decided. And really clearly uh, for us, uh, sustainability and sustainability driven innovation are two cornerstones of uh, our strategy. So that that makes uh, my, my job a lot easier because this is really where the company is rooted in, in sustainability and innovation. Uh, but how, how do we select again, what we will work on? The answer is really found in how, how we define innovation, right? We, we talked about this. There are a lot of real world problems to be solved. And we know that from very specific, our customers asking us, our consumers asking us and putting the mega trends on that together. So what we talk about is, hey, let's go and find out exactly what the big trends are. And clearly, if you look at packaging, uh, we're a packaging company and we are a natural fiber, cellulose fiber based paper packaging company. And clearly there's a big trend about sustainability, 
uh, related to climate change and pollution is plastic, especially single-use plastics. So, you know, you can take that as a theme. And if you look at that, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done if you want to address that issue. And that is something that is our North Star today. And now that allows us to start sort of develop the innovation strategy around that. What do you need to do for that? How would you do about it? What resources you need? Uh, what success would look like? So this is an example of, you know, how do we innovate in that space? And if you ask me that, really replacement of single-use plastics in packaging with a fiber-based material that's bio-based, recyclable, repulpable, is a huge, huge uh, need in the marketplace and therefore huge need in the innovation to make that happen. Can you talk a bit about what drives new ideas and perhaps touch upon the role of science at West Rock and how will you use this chemistry and material science to create new products? Both, both very good questions. So firstly, what drives new ideas? I mean, clearly, in my opinion, uh, people, people drive new ideas. And that includes our customers, our you know, consumers, and especially our teammates. And my, my teammates, I don't even mean people just in our innovation and R&D, but a lot of people in our marketing, our sales, our manufacturing. Uh, so people drive ideas in the end. And even for our investors uh, who are continuously reading market demand, they tell us about sometimes what they are finding and ask us very thought-provoking questions. And these questions often lead to that, you know, brainstorming type ideas, aha. And so again, I go back to the, our definition of innovation. So we, we, are, we are really, you know, I mean, and the technologists are very passionate problem solvers, right? And at Westrock, it's the same thing. We apply the leading science and technology to solve the problems that we have identified from the mega trends or from the customers as we talked about before. And you know, if you look at this, you know, how, how, what kind of ideas are there? I said there are different kinds of innovators. So some of us are extremely creative ones that they come up with ideas and you, know, you don't know how that bulb is, you know, goes in their head. Sometimes maybe they're reading something or they're in the shower. And then some, some are extremely curious. They're always looking for things. They're reading, talking to people. And some are great networkers. They can put together two plus two and say, hey, Salma, you should talk to Rajiv because you know he knows something that you have. So networkers, all of these people, creative types, um, curious types, networkers, and ultimately go-getters, somebody who actually puts this, gets it done. All of those you know, drive new ideas. So, and that's why the process is critical. Again, how do you drive these ideas into actually a innovation process that not only comes up with new ideas, but executes it to make it more scalable and commercial. And then, then I'll go back to that. Your second part of your question is about, you know, what is the role of science at Westrock? And, you know, and that is, that is my, my role and my title officially says science and innovation. And so, so I look at innovation as we have described before, but uh, again, without the very basics of science, nothing is possible. So we are using science and technology to solve real, real problems, right? As we mentioned, and these are the significant problems. So when I talk about you know, plastic replacement, the fundamental challenge we have in innovation is how do you make paper like plastic 
So it has got plastics, wonderful barrier properties and strength and flexibility without having plastics issues uh, as we have with recyclability and microplastics. So keep the best parts of the paper and bring something. So that is really the innovation strategy we have. And if you look at that, they're basically, we have identified four areas of technology or science that we need to really be good at, very proficient at to solve this problem and do something innovative. The number one, the biggest one is material science. And this involves everything from starting from that, basically the uh, tree, which is you know, converted into fiber pulp. That pulp is converted into paper and then paper is converted into, this is a 2D paper, it's converted into three-dimensional packaging. And there is a whole material science behind this. Uh, then we also look at packaging design. Packaging design is a very critical part of uh, packaging and not just the form, but the, you know, how it looks, even the printing. We are developing this packaging for fruits and vegetable storage. And how do you design that package? How do you get holes in there so the air can flow? Not too much and not too little. If it is too little, the moisture will build up. If there's too much air, then they don't ripen properly. So. All of this has to be, you know, really goes back to the basic science and fundamentals here to understand. We are also, you know, in Westrock, uh, very good at machinery and automation because what we do is a packaging for our industrial, very large customers in food and beverage and other e-commerce. So we need to get this packaging uh, and really automate this so that these boxes are coming down the assembly lines, pre-packaged and sealed and ready to be shipped. And the last part we are looking at is digital, uh, which is the part of smart packaging. So you look at that, there are fundamental science and technology equations involved with all of that. And you got to be good at that. Uh, or you got to be partnering with people who are good at this. So otherwise, otherwise you cannot do innovation by just saying, I want to solve a problem, but I don't have that basic science and technology background. So going back to your background in chemistry, how are you developing new innovative products that are designed for sustainability? Um, in some cases, it sounds like you're in a position of inventing things that do not currently exist. I think that the first part is my background in chemistry, and that's why I'm here. It's all material science and paper is very much, uh, paper making is a very chemical process and our paper must look a lot like uh, chemical plants. And, but then I go back to, you know, uh, relating how the chemistry is related to the paper in innovation right now is what I talked about, right? Our, our critical innovation need is to make paper like plastic. And if you look at that, what does that mean is that we need to really have the barrier properties of a plastic. You can take plastic packaging and it's impervious to water or moisture, or oil or grease, and sometimes oxygen and light. So if you look at that and extrapolate that, what you need to do is you need to look at barrier properties for paper. That means you have to look at barrier coatings. So if you look at barrier coatings that have the barrier properties, but at the same time sustainable in the sense that they're either bioderived, biodegradable, recyclable, and you know, definitely if they're in a food contact, then really approved for the food contact use. So if you look at all of that, this is again solving very basic material science, chemistry problems and coatings. And so uh, this is why the background in chemistry is very important for, for solving some of these critical needs. 
And in, in some cases, we have to look at, can we solve this ourselves or can we partner with uh, companies which are very good at this? And it is going to be a combination. Uh, again, innovation is a partnership. We had to work with our suppliers. We had to work with our customers to solve this problem. So, so we are taking this barrier coatings as an example and trying to look at paper packaging that can be then used for things like cups, beverage cups, coffee cup. I mean, can you, can you put a hard coffee and drink it uh, in a completely paper cup and not the ones that you see typically, which are plastic lined today inside? And that's, that requires uh, tremendous innovation and barrier coatings. So we are very laser focused in West Rock uh, in these kind of material science solutions that exploit the basics of chemistry as a science. That's really great to hear. Um, what about resources? What is necessary to create innovation? Um, what external tangible and intangible resources, as well as internal skills and capabilities are needed for innovation to occur? Yeah, I mean, this is a very, very important question, Salma, is, you know, what is necessary to create innovation and, uh, in a, especially in, a, in a, you know, companies uh, or any, any kind of a work environment, whether it's universities, whether it's startups, whether it's uh, some sort of a research institute. I think the number, the most important uh, fundamental thing here is that you got to be fostering an innovative culture. And what does that mean? I'll, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of that. But, you know, if you look at the culture, again, it goes back to people. So your talent pool is the, one of the most critical resources you have in making that innovation culture happen. Uh, and it is so important that you have processes in place for hiring the right people to fuel our culture of innovation. Uh, we need to identify, encourage, and, and gather people who are you know, in that talent pool that are of the right kind. And you know, I've been I've been very fortunate to work for you know some really amazing teams over the years, and this is really true for all organizations, right? They all you know truly innovative and best in the class organizations always talk about people, and how how they are doing this. But there is other part of the innovation culture, right? That culture is built from the bottom up by these people that we talked about, but culture is also like a pyramid from the top, and the leadership is very important here of what leadership says, you know, how important is the innovation and do we really mean what you say? It's not just uh, using the words, but uh, really following that. So it's both top down from the strategic perspective, how innovation is viewed in the company, how important it is and from bottom up. And then the middle is where, you know, rubber meets the road, right? It's, it's where then do you have the right processes, right ecosystem, right uh, infrastructure, right uh, skill sets, right capabilities? And that, that pyramid is then complete to have a very innovative culture. So this is, this is really the critical part of uh, both intangible and sort of tangible resources you need uh, for, for innovation. Uh, when, I, when I worked for Honeywell, for example, you know, it was really where the whole research fellows and discovery groups that we talk about, people who are just looking at uh, ideas for both very early stage and some of those bets could be very long term, but something you had to work on is something that you cannot lose sight of. And you had to let those people, talented people somewhat alone, but not completely <laughs> isolated. So there are things that you get to look at, you know, are we effectively challenging people? 
Are we effectively getting those ideas and doing something about them? And that's all of that is, is sort of a, a culture of you know, innovation that is important for a, a company to succeed. So unlike in startups, in a large company with firmly established processes and perhaps mindsets that are difficult to change, how do you go about creating a culture of innovation? Yeah, I, I would I would really that's again a very I would say I'm very passionate about that that answer to that question because in especially in established, well-established companies with large existing business, a uh, culture of innovation can be, you know, a, something that's critical as opposed to as you said, startup uh, whose whole mode of business is based on innovation. Honestly, every company wants to stand out, right? To be ahead of the curve. And you know, in today's extremely competitive global economy, innovation has never been more important for not only success, but often survival itself. So, you know, how do you, how do you create a culture that really capitalizes on innovation? And it, it's not for lack of trying, right? We have seen plenty of companies that try to talk about, you know, innovation and try to build that culture, but often, you know, it can be a flash in the pan kind of thing, right? They, you know, they look at startups in Silicon Valley and they will they will talk about innovation for a few days. They'll put a ping pong table and uh, you'll see slogans on the walls about innovation. And you know, they will say that innovation is a top priority. But what happens after you do that? What are the true actions that you take uh, or whether six months or a year later, it's business as usual. And a lot of times that, that happens in certain companies. So the fundamental issue here is that if you really want to be an innovative culture, you know, culture, if that's what you want, that you need to really take it at heart from the top down, right? It has to be strategic imperative. It is something that you don't only, you know, make noise once, but you have to keep repeating it. You have to talk about why innovation is a, you know, a core strategy, and you have to really demonstrate that by providing resources and taking on challenges. And that involves really a lot of things about giving people that freedom to work on things. It's also, you know, tolerating failure. If you're going to do some breakthrough innovation, you're going to fail. And how do you manage that risk? And when somebody fails, what message do you send to them? If you shut them down, then you know that, you know, that's not all. So, so I've been very fortunate at Westrock because Westrock really had that strategic imperative in mind. And I joined a company with that great discipline. And so, but this is something that some companies have to watch out for that. Do you really mean it? And if you mean it, are you showing that by actually what you're doing and not just saying you mentioned failure and the importance of responding to it in a way that doesn't discourage further experimentation. And that reminds me of another question. What are some innovation killers? As many as do's are there for, you know, fostering that innovation culture, there are many, many don'ts. In fact, I wrote an article on LinkedIn on this one. So, and, you know, there are many things about, uh, you know, innovation killers. It's really, again, goes to the leadership. The leadership style can make or break innovation. And, you know, here, here is a quick test that, you know, ask, ask yourself, you know, if you're an innovation leader or if you're a, you know, executive in a company, how often, you know, these questions I'm going to ask apply to yourself and be honest, right? How often are we skeptical of others' ideas are, you know, prone to dismissing them upfront? Hey, that won't work. And, you know, let me tell you why. And no, that's one. 
how many times you are likely to identify the ways the idea won't work than why it would work. I mean, that's, that's critical. And then the last question is, when somebody comes up with new ideas, do you really act on them? Or do you just say, yeah, 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 it's a good idea. But right now, no, that's not what we want to do. So that is all of these are innovation pillars. If you, if you don't act on your ideas, if you don't promote them, if you don't say, yeah, that's a great idea. Maybe let's let's try to do some proof of concept and see before trying to kill that. Uh, that is very, very important. And if you do that, those are innovation killers. And it is, it is very much that you need that time and effort with your colleagues to spend that on that ideas. And sometimes you have, you know, not all ideas are going to work. You know that. And Everybody needs to know that, that some of the especially big breakthrough ideas often fail or sometimes they often sound crazy in the beginning. And that's the, really the difference between encouraging those and letting that, uh, what I call the seed grow into a little bit of a tree before you will see a fruit. Otherwise, you'll be killing all the trees in the first six months because they're not producing fruit. This is, yeah, these are the innovation killers that are sometimes they are very subtle, but they make a huge difference. Let's talk a bit about sustainability. Um, in the past, it was viewed as nice when price was not a factor. Has this thinking changed? And can you provide some examples where sustainability is a clear value driver? Salma, I mean, for anyone who wasn't sure whether sustainability you know, was important uh, even before this pandemic and before all of these things we talked about in climate change, we asked ourselves the same question. And it's amazing. And we have, we have conducted you know, research, voice of customers, we will see uh, ourselves. And we have found a really a sea change in the attitude and about sustainability. And when we talked about consumers, we even, we even interviewed direct consumers, not just our customers, but end users. We got what the response we got was 82%. 82% of consumers agreed that it's important to balance, you know, safety and concern for environment when designing for product packaging. Nearly 70% of them said that packaging, which is environmentally friendly, you know, impacts the brand trust. Uh, another 70% said that the packaging, which is easily recycled or composed, impacted their satisfaction and their decision to buy certain products. So we have, we have seen the data and our, our customers have seen the same data that uh, how serious uh, sustainability is not uh, like in the past where it was nice to have when performance and cost were met, but now sustainability is the key criteria uh, along with performance. So this is really has been a change. It's not just in packaging industry for sure, but uh, Many industries have seen that change in the last few years. And if anything, I see that trend accelerating dramatically in next uh, this decade. There's certainly a shift in sentiment when it comes to sustainability. Um, what do you think drives that? Yeah, the sustainability drivers right now are, and I, I'll talk more from my current experience in packaging, but uh, I can talk a little bit more about my past experience, though. The key sustainability driver really is, is about our earth, protecting the earth and the sustainability in terms of packaging that is uh, recyclable, uh, reusable packaging that is based on low carbon footprint. So all of those are the major sustainability drivers. And if you look at those, uh, we try to then take those, as we said, mega trends and mega sustainability drivers 
And we try to think about how we can apply that. And I can give you an example of packaging where the need for packaging is greatly accelerated because of, not only because of pandemic, but e-commerce. I mean, you look at e-commerce and I sit here at my home and I can see my neighbors and I can see Amazon truck uh, and the UPS truck and FedEx truck driving almost every hour and the packages are being delivered. So we looked at a simple thing, you know, we, we developed this thing called pack on a demand pouch. So it's, it's really a sleeve of a paper that you can automate on a line and you can really cut it to different sizes on this automated uh, machinery. And you can put different different kind of packaging, different, maybe small one, tiny one, single use material, a large package with five, six things in them and really seal the package on the both ends uh, as it comes in. So on assembly line, every package will be of different size of a pouch, uh, depending on the package that needs to be converted. So it instantly takes care of the bubble wrap and the tertiary packaging, and then you know having to have a large uh, size and with the, in a wide space that you had to fill with another packing material to prevent from jostling. All of those things are eliminated. It's a great sustainability story, but it's also cost and it's also efficiency. It's all automated. So, and given today what we are seeing, which we didn't see this coming with the labor shortage. So innovation is, you know, is really helping us in terms of the sustainability driver, which is a mega trend coming from e-commerce and sustainability put together. So this is just an example, and we have several examples like this into both e-commerce, in food industry. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example of how an innovation can be in a totally different space, uh, different way of thinking. So we are, we are one of the largest suppliers of pizza boxes uh, in US. And pizza box like pizza, just like in pandemic, you know, delivery for pizza has skyrocketed. And if you look at it, we found that we did a survey and we found out that a lot of consumers believe that, you know, when they, they finish eating a pizza because the pizza box has some leftover bread and cheese and meat, it's not recyclable. So they would not put it in the recycle bin, but uh, just, you know, in a landfill trash. And on top of that, we found that there are 160,000 municipalities in US that do not recycle pizza box for the same reason. They believe it's not recyclable. So we did a study. We actually looked at these contaminated you know, pizza boxes and we did repulpability, recyclability. We made the paper, we did the pizza box and we showed that, hey, that leftover residue cheese is not a problem. The recycling, repulping process handles that. And so uh, we, we had a great partnership with Domino's. And so now we're taking this message to the consumers and to the municipalities and the recycling facilities. Hey, pizza box is recyclable. And believe it or not, there are today approximately 3 billion, 3 billion as B pizza boxes used in US every year. And so if you can increase the recycle, and the recycle at good rate, but if you can increase the recycling rate by 10%, that'll be 300 million pieces of boxes that we can recycle. So this is an amazing story about how innovation works when you sort of look at what the problem is and try to solve that. Can you elaborate on what circular economy means in the paper packaging industry? I think the topic of plastics must be addressed here. There are absolutely a lot of benefits to plastics as we talked about. The challenges in recycling and making plastic truly circular. 
On the other hand, paper is circular in nature. We use fiber source from basically privately owned and responsibly managed forests, which form a really inherently renewable source of uh, material. The trees, you know, they are like plantations, so it's like agriculture. So we grow the trees and then we harvest them and we grow the trees again. So it is a renewable source and it is essentially takes CO2 from air as, as the trees are growing. So it is that. And then what is more important is that we now use recycled content, the recycled material to make uh, the paper and then the packaging. And again, more important is that today, the paper uh, packaging, and if you look at corrugated box and the, the, the one we talked about, uh, cardons, it is already heavily recycled today. Uh, we have a great recycling facilities in place in US and a lot of developed work. For example, West Rock is one of the largest recyclers in North America. And the industry has now reported, the pulp and paper industry, which is American Forest and Paper Association, AFNPA, that in 2020, if you look at these container boxes, the corrugated boxes, fully almost 89% of them were recycled. Today, I mean, it's not, we're not talking about future, but in 2020, two years back, 89% of them were recycled. So it is truly a circular economy uh, based on a renewable material that is recycled and reused. So this is really the, what, what distinguishes uh, paper packaging today. And that's why the sustainability driver is, uh, you know, taking us to a, you know, really a great, great place uh, from that aspect of circularity. That's really encouraging to hear. Um, I, I want to dive a bit deeper into the paper packaging industry itself. Obviously, it's a very mature industry, uh, but we're starting to see a lot of innovation there. What do you think is causing that change? You know, uh, we as industry and Westrock as a company have always been innovating, but uh, we are all talking about it more now. And in some respect, the stakes are higher. You know, for example, I'll just tell you, we just recently announced that uh, we are going to pledge our CO2 emissions to a science-based target uh, number. So if you look at that, that would require a tremendous amount of innovation to get that kind of uh, CO2 footprint reduction. We are engaged with our landowners uh, for, you know, responsibly managing their forest and, you know, sustainably managing their forest. Uh, but the times now are calling for a major collective action on addressing the climate change. And similarly, innovation there is going to be much more important than ever before. We talked about, again, plastic, uh, single-use plastic versus paper and the circular economy. And again, developing capabilities around material science, packaging design, automation, digital. So this is really, I think, driving that innovation and you know what you see as a visible change, but it's something that was already there is now on a you know, fast, uh, very fast accelerated pace because the stakes are a lot higher. What innovations in packaging do you think consumers have been the most excited about? Yeah, all of, all of our customers are looking for ways to improve the sustainability of their packaging. And we are finding for many of them that means either moving away from plastic to a renewable recyclable fiber-based packaging. They're definitely interested in, in carbon. 
but the first questions are often asking is, do you have a fiber-based substrate for my current packaging? And then there is this expansive landscape renovation that we are developing about looking at plastic. And you know, I, I gave an example of a coffee cup. Most coffee cups were plastic. And then what you see today, most people, consumers feel that when they go to their favorite coffee shop, they are now using a paper cup. But the fact is that most of these paper cups actually have a plastic liner inside. Uh, generally polyethylene liner, and that's what keeps that hard coffee from uh, sogging and making the paper wet and dissolving it. So we just developed, and it's it's really very you know significant innovation to get to this place, uh, fully paper-based coffee cup. And I know your your readers cannot see, but they can only listen. But I'm holding in my hand a fully paper-based uh, with a aqueous coating material coffee cup that is 100% recyclable, repulpable. And we're about to launch that. This is just an example of what we're doing. We have taken plastic tubes out from cosmetics. So we have made deodorant tubes uh, and you can buy those now in uh, your local store. Uh, those are completely made of, of paper. Uh, we are looking at trays, uh, which are, you know, anything from you know, protein trays, like when you go to your supermarket grocery and in the freezer, your chicken or pork or beef, uh, those trays are generally polystyrene or expanded polystyrene trays. We have made paper trays uh, that are fully again recyclable. So there are many of these things that uh, we have developed recently and there are many more. Our innovation pipeline is so exciting that uh, I can't talk about some of the things that will be coming in next few months and years, but uh, this is where when we talk about our customers and consumers, they're very excited. Uh, they, when they see that, they really are telling us, let's go faster, let's go. And so that's that's really encouraging that we are solving these problems and there's a tremendous need here uh, to go, go get it done. And the benefits are incredible. Can you talk a bit about what innovations are on the horizon at West Rock? Yeah, so, you know, I talked about this uh, partnership with Domino's and I talked about this pack-on-demand pouch for e-commerce. But what I just mentioned are the two products that, three products that we just recently uh, launched or about to launch, uh, the trays, uh, the protein trays, and what we're talking about are the cosmetic, the tubes for deodorants and then it could be next to lipstick and other things. But what we're also doing is another great example, great story we have that we just recently launched and we got uh, right now two customers uh, that are first adopters of this is a can color. I mean, again, this is a great example. Everybody's familiar with the familiar, the six pack ring, six pack, the beverage ring of six pack plastic uh, to hold the six cans together of a beer or a soda. And that has been a really a significant environmental challenge because these rings often end up in the environment. They're not properly recycled or, uh, or, or landfill. And then in the environment, they can last forever. They end up in waterways lakes and oceans and you have seen some really uh, horrible pictures of uh, you know animal getting stuck into this so we have developed a fully paper-based can color and this is something that coca-cola in europe was our first customer to try this and now we have others but this is something where it's a completely paper-based technology it replaces the plastic-based solution and 
we have already just, just initial launch with two key customers on a limited basis. So we already saw, you know, saved 50 metric tons of plastic rings. And that is literally millions of plastic rings that uh, we have taken out. The second thing we are working on very recently is that the fruit and vegetable containers. So if you go into grocery store today in the fruit and vegetable section, a lot of fruit, like, like blueberries, they are in a plastic package, uh, cucumbers, tomatoes. Uh, and we are developing a paper-based solution packaging. And I was talking about that. We just need to make it right kind that it can handle the fruit and vegetable from over ripening or under ripening or rotting and create that structure. So this is another another thing we will call it evergrow. Uh, these are what the technical term is a punnet. So we are going to be launching several versions of that. And for every fruit, from blueberries to uh, you know something else, from cucumbers to tomatoes to lettuce, everything will have a different size and shape, and so we'll need you know slightly different innovation. So that's another exciting thing that's uh, that's that that is in the pipeline that's coming. So and I could go on and on, Selma. We got about <laughs> dozens of these examples here. So it's 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 tremendously exciting. I definitely agree. <laughs> Um, the last topic that I want to get your thoughts on is regulation. How do you see regulation influencing and to what extent the process of innovation? Absolutely. Regulation really directly affects the innovation process because uh, innovation and technical change have significant impacts on regulations. You know, so they go both ways. And to be successful, regulatory efforts must consider the linkage between regulation and innovation. Economic can improve the efficiency of markets in delivering goods and services, you know, which influences the innovative process. And there are regulations that protect the environment, uh, the regulations that protect the safety and health, uh, the regulations that encourage innovation. Uh, there are also, you know, sometimes people consider that some certain regulations discourage innovation because they don't allow you to sometimes change. And so there are some cases where regulations can be discouraging, but in most cases, what I have seen is that regulations often encourage breakthrough innovation because when you demand something like that. So for example, in packaging industry, a lot of this plastic to paper has been voluntary, but now several countries and state and counties are putting a single use plastic ban. And that regulation is forcing innovation in terms of people now saying, wow, now I must do something. Uh, so things like that, and that that really helps the public and private sector, those regulations then to plan and, and put something in the marketplace. So right regulations can encourage your innovations while also protecting the rights of individuals and the wider economy, which is again, also regulatory process of IP. So regulations, in my opinion, are influencing innovation tremendously and very often in a positive way. So when we look at history, many innovations that we currently use, the internet, for example, came out of government-sponsored programs. What do you think is the government's role in bringing about and making good use of innovation? Oh, absolutely. A number of different government policies can increase the incentives to innovate, right? Including, uh, you know, what I talked about, uh, protecting the intellectual property rights, uh, providing the government assistance uh, for the cost of research and development in a form of like tax credits in U.S., uh, 
cooperative research uh, ventures uh, between universities and companies, uh, government-funded uh, research institutes like uh, NIH, uh, doing incredible stuff in innovation in the medical field, as we you know we have seen from the COVID pandemic episode. Grant-providing agencies like uh, National Science Foundation. Uh, so all of those are examples of what effective government policies can do to help innovation. Uh, government policies can also create public awareness. So like the single-use plastic ban is creating a regulatory environment for focusing on that, banning those and encouraging the new solutions. Whenever you have big change and innovation brings new technology, the new technology often starts at a small scale and generally at a higher price points. And as you learn and you double your manufacturing scale, your supply chains get better, your cost improves. So government support in that earlier part is very important. And this is exactly what I talk about in that single-use plastic. Uh, and now, right now, 16 U.S. states have enacted statewide regulations around packaging waste, and it's mostly focused on single-use plastics like shopping bags, grocery bags, uh, and increasing recycling targets. So this is going to be an example of how you know the government innovation can certainly play a great role in bringing innovation. This has been really insightful, Rajiv. Uh, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with me. It was my pleasure, Selma. I enjoyed it.